welcome to episode 217 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 13th of February 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Howdy. Graham. Hello, everyone. And Will. Hello. I see we're all still loved up from Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do some discoveries then. Will, what is Reveng? Reveng. Right, so... Last time we did discoveries, Graham talked about a piece of software called Sibelius, which was for making sheet music. And it rung a bell in the back of my head, and I looked into it a bit more, and it turns out that Sibelius started life on the Acorn Archimedes, and that's where I remembered it from. And then this week, I was trying to reverse engineer a CRC check algorithm, and I found Revenge. And it also started life on the Acorn Archimedes and still compiles natively for the Acorn Archimedes. So that in itself, I thought, was worthy of a discovery. But if you are trying to reverse engineer a protocol between a device and a server, and it uses some sort of protocol with a CRC check on the end of it, and you don't know which CRC check that you need to calculate in order to communicate with this thing, then Revenge is for you because you can give it a whole load of seeds and it will calculate the CRC out of, I think, 112 different models in the code. And it will find the one that matches the examples you've given it. And so within a couple of seconds, you can find out how to calculate that checksum and not have to reverse engineer a whole load of source code or compiled binaries or whatever it is, it will do the hard work for you. And it makes the work of an hour or two to a few seconds. So extremely useful, if niche, use case. I'd like to put some sort of smart comment to that, but it's just, yeah, cool. <laughs> that is very niche. What was the actual thing that you were doing with this then? Oh, this is still, I'm still playing around with the Bluetooth lights that I've got working, but I'm determined to try and crack this last CRC sum and um, still haven't got it yet. The software works, but none of the standard protocols are the correct one. So I'm still chipping away at it. I can definitely see how this would be useful, especially with smart home and other bits that sometimes you can reverse engineer the protocol, but then the checksum sometimes is the hardest bit. Mm. You need it to be able to send stuff back or for something to be interpreted properly rather than it being a hack. So I've definitely encountered things like this before, but you know, this sounds really good. Two sets of fucking pipes, a shed and fucking slippers to be <laughs> sent to the pair of ye. All right, Fairlim, lurk. Yeah, Lurk is, um, well, it's not very exciting, really. It's a slightly opinionated, colorized version of S-Trace, which I had to use a fair few times in the last while, troubleshooting applications that were either locking up or were having trouble starting, and it's just a prettier version, and it's a bit nicer to use. I mean, if you're very hardcore into your S-Trace, you're not going to like it probably because it doesn't do exactly the thing you the way you like to do it. But it's quite smart the way it does things. It's got some JSON output if you even needed to sort of feed it into a automated system or something like that. It's got expressions for searching stuff. It's quite handy and it looks nice and it's all in Rust. So hopefully it's memory error free. All right. And what's goalkicker.com? Yeah. So these are a set of books some of the stuff in them is a bit terse, not all of it. It covers a massive range of subjects, all the way from like .NET to Android development to C, C++, Python, a whole load of stuff. And I got a, a reminder email about a new one that had come out. And 
to be honest, you can get them for free. You can contribute money to them. You can get them. I think you can maybe even buy them in printed form. I'm not 100% sure. But if you're looking for some books to get started, and maybe if you're not able to even stump up for like a safari thing or even a full paperback book or whatever, it's worth looking at these to start off with because some of the stuff they have is really good and it's quite clearly and nicely laid out. Yes, they might not have as much sort of padding around them, but I think they're not a bad start for some things. And yeah, they're free as well. Yeah, and you don't even have to sign up. I just clicked on the Swift one and Mm. downloaded the PDF and got going with it. Very handy. Yeah, I can provide a curl for you to download them all because I was excessively lazy and didn't want to read them because I had some of them and I wasn't sure which ones were updated and not. So I just download them all again. So you just wanted to add to your massive stash of books you'll never read. I have a colossal, colossal stash. And I've even started buying secondhand books now for some of the titles that don't get updated that often. I'm thinking, oh, it'd be nice to have that in paperback form so it can also sit there and do fuck all on my shelf. <laughs> like, was it the Rust book that you bought? I haven't even opened the Rust book. Shut up. I've also bought a new Nmap book and a Active Directory low-level thing that I was looking to research some stuff on. Yeah, open none of them, so shut up. They do insulate the walls, though. I don't need this pressure, man. <laughs> I don't need this pressure. It's just like being at school again. All right, and a shout out to Matt Mole with his uh, LNL discoveries that he's been keeping up to date. Ah, I tell you, save my bacon. I was looking for a find that we had, and I, for the life of me, could not remember what it was. And I've actually blanked on what it is even now. That's how bad it mm. is. But I had to look up something, and I had to pass it on to somebody, and I said, I know I have done this. And I went looking through our webpage, and I could not find it for the life of me. And yes, I searched the keyword, and his thing found it. So... Mm. Thank you very much, Matt Mole, you saviour. You know what you should have done is you should have gone to latenightlinux.com slash discoveries. I didn't know that was there. Try it. I'm trying it. Ah, look at that. Links to it. Very good. Oh, well, no, I didn't find it that way. I had to actually search for it the hard way. Uh, well, I actually did this a couple of weeks ago. I forgot to tell anyone. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, Matt's been updating it. So uh, I know some other people did as well uh, answer the the challenge of doing it. But uh, Matt tags us on social media when he updates it. So uh, he won, I suppose. So thank you. Yeah. So if he will keep updating it, who knows? But it's certainly up to date as we're recording, I think. So, uh, yeah, check it out. All right, well, I've got a couple of discoveries. The first one is ConvertCase. This is a very, very simple website. It's not open source, but whatever. You can open it in Firefox and it works. So if you've accidentally typed stuff with caps lock or say you've copied a headline from a news story or a blog post that you want to put in your show notes and it's all in fucking caps rather than retyping it, paste it into this and then it'll just sort it out. And it not only will it do lowercase, it'll also do sentence case, capitalized case, alternating case, title case, inverse case, all these things. And there's loads of other tools on this site as well. It seems to have grown out of this one problem. And uh, it's, you know, it's not the prettiest website in the world, but it's so fucking useful. So uh, yeah, if ever you find yourself in need of that, convertcase.net. And the other one is not really my discovery. One of you put it in our Telegram group and I tried it out and I was like, yes, I'm fucking having this. <laughs> Carbonyl, I think is how you say it. It is Chromium in the terminal. And you can fucking watch YouTube videos and everything. And it's it's just amazing. It's just a browser in the terminal. And it's got these little back and forward buttons. And it is 
so much fun and there's various ways to get it with docker and stuff or you just download the binary and then just uh you know mark it as executable and run it which is what i did and it's fucking so much fun man just to see and i showed my wife it and she was like what the fuck she was like wow that's well cool (laughs) watching youtube videos and just like it's actually relatively good quality i don't know how the fuck it does it man but uh yeah, check it out. It's definitely worth it. And uh, look on the GitHub page and look at the Doom video. It's just crazy. You can play Doom in a browser in the terminal. Of course you can. But the way it renders images is so good. And text is just text. It's just fucking brilliant. I was doing that in M-Player back in the day, 20 <laughs> years ago, for God's sake. Please stop. Also, did you know that another organic carbonyl is urea, which is piss? And that's what I think of Chrome in my browser. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. So Will, you've discovered that GitHub sponsors have stopped accepting PayPal, and this has not worked out very well for you. I say discovered. I mean, they told me. An email came around, and there's been a few blog posts about it. But yeah, they no longer accept PayPal for sponsorships via GitHub. So, so far, so boring, uh, except that when you put your credit card details in, they've billed me in US dollars, which means that I've had to pay a currency conversion fee on top, which I never had to do with uh, PayPal. Now, presumably, that's because github at the costs and now i'm eating the costs and it's not very much money but nevertheless you do need to add a credit card to github and you do need to be aware that they will probably charge you in us dollars i can't help but feel like removing that payment option will be detrimental to developers it's a very tricky thing the whole paying for things online and fees and everything but uh yeah i can't help but feel this is a bit of a bad move but i do understand why they've done it Stripes up their money in Europe as well. So I wonder, is there a sort of a hidden undercurrent of Mm. financial annoyance going on everywhere? It's almost as if the global economy is totally fucked (laughs) and free money isn't a thing anymore. Are you saying we should all make our own cryptocurrencies? Yes, you're right. We should. (laughs) Quick, do that. No, crypto is bullshit, but Bitcoin, that's where it's at. That's legit. (laughs) My sovereign invilgy says, fuck yours. All right, Graham, you seem to have discovered the queen of 4chan B from about 15 years ago, (laughs) Boxy. Actually, Boxy is, it's a way of kind of very cheaply containerizing an app or a command line tool. It uses Linux namespaces, which is a really neat feature of the Linux kernel that allows, that kind of 
makes an app or a tool that you run inside this namespace think that there's nothing outside it. And it does this mainly to redirect file input and output and directory input and output. So it's most useful for those commands and things that litter your home directory with all kinds of config files that aren't in .config or wherever you want them to be, or you want to run multiple instances with different configuration setups. And Boxy lets you do this. You basically, you can, it's also scriptable. So you can say you want to run this tool under these set of circumstances and this, the same tool under a different set of circumstances with a different configuration for saving and loading its configuration files. That's all there is to it, really. It's like really low level, doesn't get in the way of anything. You, you add the configuration for the commands you want to run. So Tmux is a good example because it drops its configuration files in the home directory create a tmux config that moves the configuration files to .config or wherever you happen want it to be, and then run boxy tmux and it'll use your config. And tmux will be none the wider. Uh, it'll think it's saving to its default location. And same with cache files and all the rest of it. And it's also really handy if you download something and you don't really want to let it have full control or access of your home. Is this like to try and compete against Nixos? <laughs> just saying, just putting it out there. It's just a simple tool, really. It seems like it's got a sort of similar goal in certain aspects, but it might be a bit of a simpler way of achieving the same result. Yeah, I think so. It's not as ambitious. So better than. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell Martin we impress that. Yep. This looks really handy for all of those apps that you find that say, oh, just pipe this bash file, you know, this text file into bash and see what happens. <laughs> and you can... You know, automatically just stop it from just trashing all over your file system by mm. using Boxy. This looks really helpful. I, I think I can find many, many uses for this. Yeah, it's an awful lot easier than my thing of firing up an entire KVM host to mm. yeah. install it and then do a diff against it afterwards. <laughs> so, Phelim, you've previously talked about the ADSB stuff. Just a quick recap, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about how you aviation nerds had been feeding your data into this site or this service and then it got sold for loads of money and it wasn't clear when we talked about it what the replacement was going to be but it seems like it's going to be the air traffic it does but there are still all the other ones i've amassed on too about this and maybe we can stick that in the show notes because that has kind of all of the things but yeah this one is run by the guy who was tracking Elon's jet. Ah. So there is a bit of fame and maybe maybe that extra bit of fame behind him is maybe bumping it up a bit higher than the others. Ironically, it does have the best reception for MLAT traffic, which is the multilateration stuff where things that aren't given out their position, you can still detect where they are. Well, certainly around me anyway, so I guess that just means there's more receivers near me at the time. But yeah, I think that might be the one that is there. I mean, there's nothing stopping you feeding all the ones that you like. And there's been a few things that people have developed where you can literally just go, yeah, 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 yeah. No, not that one. And then off you go. And uh, yeah, so simple to do. I think it's well worth doing if you can. So this probably is going to lead to less centralization and more decentralization then, ultimately. Uh, yeah, a federation is a bit of a dirty word in those channels at the moment because everybody seems to be just waltzing and going, federation, federation, and they're all just going, uh-huh. Because with some of the stuff you can't, it, like the server that picks it up has to get all of the planes in that area's stuff so it can do maths on them, and that actually doesn't work for federation for that side of things. 
I mean, the historical records, yeah, I think that could be certainly something that they could all share their work and the, the, the bandwidth costs of maybe. But some of it, I think, is kind of server in that region has to be a single node and has to do all the maths on itself because they, they time out after a couple of seconds. They're not even worth processing anymore. Could this have anything to do with the fact that when a helicopter came over my place today, it wasn't on flight radar or any of the other ones like they used to be? It depends on what the helicopter is. They don't necessarily have to have ADSB. They may have ADSB, but they may have it switched off if they're military, and they may have just filtered it out of some of the sites. The thing to do is sometimes is load up a couple of them while you're looking at it. The likes of theairtraffic.com will actually show everything that they can show, but the lights of flight radar, they'll actually filter out stuff. So could it like if that was a government helicopter or the Queen or, oh, no, sorry, not the Queen. His Majesty the King, come on. Yes, that's it. Uh, if it was himself there, uh, like that wouldn't show up, but they may still be transmitting to tra- traffic control that, yeah, I exist, but I'm just not going to tell you where I am exactly. And, you know, that's where things like MLAT comes up and detects that because it, it can just kind of triangulate it essentially. Fair enough. Well, I'll have to keep an eye on that, but it sounds like things are shaking out at least. Yeah, and it, it's dead easy. There's a document that I'll, I'll provide to Joe and we'll stick it in the show notes. And it's, yeah, it's simple to get going, especially if you've already got one and you can just switch it to do all of them. It's brilliant. Can you track UFOs? <laughs> or balloons? <laughs> all that means is that they are unidentified. That doesn't mean they have aliens on board. And it does definitely mean we should shoot them with a 500 grand missile. <laughs> <laughs> Not my tax dollars. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't believe that, man. Overkill. Like, surely you could just shoot some machine guns at it. It's only a fucking balloon. I think they did it for safety. If you sit fire bullets or something, they go somewhere at the end of it. And I think that's why they waited until it went off into the sea to start with. And then you're up at 60,000 feet. There's not a lot of air up there. So you can't be messing around, like aiming at stuff. And I think the missile was actually the cleanest way of doing it. Either that or I've been bought by Raytheon. I mean, who knows at this point? Well, I read an article that said that in the past they have shot loads of bullets at these things and they just like went through without bursting the, the balloon itself. And so, I don't know, maybe the, the explosion seemed to be pretty small, so maybe they just shot the missile straight through the middle of it. Yeah, I think it didn't have a warhead. I've heard a lot of people say that, but yeah, I don't know. I guess we, we'll probably never be told. <laughs> On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate it. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Linux After Dark. And you should definitely check out those shows. They're great. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. 
So visit collide.com slash late night Linux to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. Let's do some feedback then. Yeah, and Admin X has said, it would be great to discuss what proper full installation backup apps exist, preferably GUI, as I don't care to modify config files ad nauseum, as has been the case for years. That's where Windows has the Linux ecosystem beat hands down, particularly on the user desktop space. I've tried many of the so-called options over the years, and they're either too limited, geared more towards enterprises like Bacula, all are downright shit. Many of them have simply become abandonware. Perhaps you and the team can shed some light on this all-important part of migrating the average user away from Windows Mac as possible. Without something as simple as Apple's Time Machine or Windows Backup, sure it's shit but it works, or the many offerings over the years like Semantic Backup Recovery, EaseUS, To-Do Backup, more recently, etc., it makes administration for tech support like all of us that much more difficult. Since XT4 is still king in the Linux world and not a copy and write file system like ZFS or BTRFS, ButterFS, perhaps that's the issue since it can't do proper live images like NTFS, VSS. That sounded like an advert for other backup software and other platforms. <laughs> it does a bit, doesn't it? Do you think Admin X is public enemies admin assistant? So when uh, Terminator X has to get a new tax disk, Admin X takes care of it. Or back up his PC, perhaps. Fight the power. Yeah, it's so fucking old, you lot, honestly. Like, half the audience won't get that. I barely do. I think Linux Mint has got a built-in tool for this kind of thing. But generally, it is a bit lacking, isn't it? GUI tools for this on Linux. I think if you want the best backup system for a non-cow system, yes, I think Borg backup is definitely the one you want. And I have seen Vorta backup, and it looks pretty good. Now, I use it through a shell script, and I would honestly say it's easier to do a shell script if you just get through that initial stage where it looks like gibberish. It is well worth it in the long run because I back up my stuff from Borg onto a ZFS partition, and then I just sanoid that off to a remote site. Syncoid it. Well, syncoid, yes, okay, but it uses sanoid on the system anyway. So I've got snapshots of my Borg backups. Borg backup itself is fantastic. It has that scary sort of get yourself out of the shit when you forget your password because they're huge, but it can print out a paper version of your decryption key that you can stick in a safe somewhere. So I literally have a massive code QR thing that you can stick in a safe, keep it safe, so you you can get those backups back because they're all encrypted. And what's the worst thing with encrypted backups is when you forget the password. So I would say GUIs are all fine and well until you have to go and get stuff out. Whereas if it's an actual simpler backup system that is run from a shell script, I think that's actually better. But Vorta is a way to get both. Isn't there a way with Clonezilla to regularly take entire machine snapshots to a single file and offload those to like object store or, or something like that? Have you ever tried any of those sorts of things, Phelan? Well, see, the thing I, I usually use a encrypted root partition. Oh. And the problem with that is that you get like an 80 gig file and then it's a, another 80 gig file because mm. it doesn't really do a bit by bit copy, I don't think. I think it just takes a big image of it again. But I know what you mean. And if you don't have to have encrypted, like this is where I actually thought encrypted home directories, even though it was a bit ugly with eCryptFS, 
I liked that idea more because it meant you got to a bootable system, but your own data then was encrypted. And yeah, okay, you could say, well, somebody could boot that system and put a Trojan on it or whatever. But if you have to remote into a system that you can just restart safely, you know it'll come back up to a operating system. I always thought that was a bit better. And then that was just your home directory that you could copy off and it was no big deal. But with looks, it's kind of like all or nothing. It's just a big lump of data. And yeah, I don't know. But I used to actually, funny enough, use that for uh, Windows systems. And that was kind of handy. There was another one that was the same. That was, uh, was it something like Ghost or something like that? Oh, I can't remember now. Mm, I remember Ghost, yeah. Is it Norton? Yeah, Norton? yeah, I think it was Norton, yeah. A real sign of quality. All right. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was back in the ugly days. What can you do? But uh, yeah, those things were kind of handy, but you often got to the point where just big images, I felt it's okay in Linux where you can just say, take your entire home directory, it's fine. And then you can just dump it on a system. The way I treat my server is, or my even my workstation, if that root directory blows up, I don't care because it's a quicker to actually just do an install of it than it is to try and work that all out. All I care about is my home directory and then all my stuff that's out on ZFS. And I think that's a better way of dealing with things because then Ubuntu's got the install down where it's really quick. Like what, what's an Ubuntu install? It's about 15 minutes. Whereas trying to like decipher that back out of what you've got your settings and stuff would be just painful, I think. For me, all my important data is on my NAS. And that's on ZFS, and it gets backed up with Sanoid and Syncoid. And I know that's not the answer you're looking for here. You want some sort of GUI, but I just think it's easier to put a bit of work in, get your config files sorted, and then just almost set it and forget it. I know you should test your backups and everything, but as long as you've got enough copies of it and you do test it regularly, you can with Sanoid and Syncard and ZFS, just set it and forget it. And I know I'm like a shill and, you know, whatever, and Jim and Alan love ZFS and their Zalets, but, you know, it took me a while of doing a show with them to really kind of get it and really get on board. And now I am just like this proper Zalet for ZFS. And I'm just not aware of any GUI tools that will do it, unfortunately, as well with the snapshots and with the, the ease of sending it and knowing that it's worked properly and everything. I used to use rsync, but again, that's command line based. And I still use rsync as well to one drive that's just ext4. But I think there might be a gap in the market here for Linux desktops, maybe. But is the market big enough? I'm not convinced. Yeah, my setup is very similar to yours. A couple of scripts, and I also make sure that I copy things that I need to, like I've talked before about syncing my config files to Git, and that happens all the time whenever there's a change to the directory. But yeah, otherwise I are sync to a ZFS NAS. And then that is also our sync to a NAS that's actually at my mum's <laughs> for really important stuff I really don't want to lose. So you don't ZFS send it then, you just rsync it? Yeah, I do, yeah, because I d- it's just the way that I always did it before ZFS. Yeah, exactly. But you, honestly, you should check out Sunoid and Syncoid and you'll realize that, fuck, man, this is the way forward. Okay. Yeah, the beauty of them is the fact that they're live and you know if it syncs over properly, all the checksums match up, then you know it's actually real mm. as opposed mm. to an R-Sync job, which maybe shat itself halfway through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because if it does shit itself halfway through as LFS send, there's just nothing on the other end. So you can just SSH in. And if that data is there, then it, it worked. It's, it's binary. Either it works or it doesn't. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. It's not like certain other next generation file systems that can shit themselves halfway through and give you a partial fucking backup. 
I mean, there's nothing worse than that. Either work or don't work. The thing about a GUI is the fact that every time you try to abstract something away to make it easier for the user to use, it becomes more complicated for the developer because it's there's always something going on there. Whereas if you can understand that your backups are a simple simple command to get there, simple command to send it, and then a simple to retrieve, it's better than trying to work through a GUI that may or may not actually work the way you think it does. You don't know what's going on in the background. So I don't know. We're really not doing a great job of advertising Linux for new users, are we? Look, just those books that I've sent, there's at least 15 of them. Just go through all those. It's about 20,000 pages, and then you'll be grand. I think it's a really good point, and I've thought this for a while also with ZFS and to an extent ButterFS, that we're really also missing an easy GUI for people to get the most out of those file systems because people are just missing so many features. There is something in Linux Mint, and I can't remember the name of it, but there's... I'm sure that does work or, okay, I'm not sure. I think it might work on other distros. But uh, yeah, have a look at Linux Mint's one is is my advice. I don't know how good it is because I've not checked it out, but I've heard reasonably good things about it. All right, Harry says, I've been modestly supporting a couple of your podcasts for a while through a monthly Patreon donation, but now I'm hearing that they may not be very nice guys to deal with. What method of support works best for you? i.e. what gets the biggest percentage of my donation to you. Love hearing you guys banter, but have you ever thought that Phelim is right after all? <laughs> so, sorry, I didn't catch that. What, say that again? What? No, no, I think he's uh, <laughs> kind of a bit strange there at the end. So I have read some things and heard some people badmouthing Patreon recently. And look, all companies are over a certain level are run by showers of bastards. That's just how it fucking goes. And especially anything financial, like banks and everything. And the bottom line is Patreon, PayPal, Stripe, they all take some of the money and there might be negligible differences. I think Stripe is probably one of the better ones, but uh, between PayPal and Patreon, it's it's much the same, really. And, you know, it's it's all appreciated. And just don't worry about it. Whatever's easiest for you. Like if if you have a, a personal issue with Patreon, then then okay, don't do it. But it's fine. It's you know, Patreon has the the network effect still, and it may not for that much longer. We'll see. But uh, yeah, for for anyone looking to support us, just just whatever's easiest for you, as long as it's not fucking crypto bollocks, is the bottom line, because that just doesn't help anyone. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when it'll probably be news, but who knows. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.